My guest today is Professor Tim Maudlin. Professor Tim Maudlin is an American philosopher and is professor of philosophy at New York University and has been a visiting professor at Harvard University. His research focuses on the foundation of physics, metaphysics, and logic. He has published several papers and articles and book chapters on these and related topics. He is the author of very interesting books on these topics uh, and these books are Truth and Paradox, Solving the Riddles, The Metaphysics Within Physics, Quantum Non-Locality and Relativity and Philosophy of Physics, Space and Time. Professor Tim Maudlin is with me on the phone from New York. Tim, thank you very much for taking my call and welcome to Bridging the Gaps. Well, thank you very much for having me. Uh, Tim, before we begin our discussion on the subject of philosophy and science and foundations of physics, please tell us about yourself, about your education, about your career, and about your research. Well, um, I guess my education, when I go back to my undergraduate years, I uh, did a joint major in physics and philosophy. And I think that was a reflection of my interests, which tended to go down to very foundational or fundamental questions and uh, pursued in science in a certain way that leads you down to physics and then the foundations of physics and pursued almost anywhere else leads you somewhere to, to, to what philosophers will tend to talk about. Uh, when I came out, I actually did my PhD in the history and philosophy of science because that allowed me to continue in the same vein. And uh, I've been working largely on issues in foundations of physics and somewhat uh, logic and a little bit recently mathematics uh, ever since. Uh, Tim, in the past few years, a number of scientists have said that we don't need philosophy. Uh, studying philosophy is a waste of time, and some have even suggested that philosophy is dead. What is your take on such comments? Well, the comment that philosophy is dead uh, that got a lot of notice was, of course, made by Stephen Hawking. Mm -hmm. And all I can say is, is for perfectly good and completely understandable reasons, I, I doubt that Professor Hawking uh, has spent time reading contemporary philosophy of physics. Um, it's, I'm sure he has much better things to do than that. So my uh, overall sense is that many of the physicists who say this simply don't know what is done nowadays in philosophy of physics. Um, maybe they had a little bit of exposure to philosophy as undergraduates. Uh, maybe even in philosophy of science, they read Karl Popper or Thomas Kuhn, which is all work that's coming up on, on, on being almost a century out of date. Um, it's certainly true that at a, at a point, many philosophers who would write about issues having to do with science didn't study enough of the science to speak knowledgeably about it. But the tendency in the last 40 years, at least, has been for philosophers to become more and more specialized and to become reasonably competent um, in the particular sciences that they're going to comment on. In fact, particularly in physics, we get people whose training, their PhDs, are in physics proper. And what they find is that 
although their interest is in certain foundations issues, uh, foundational issues in physics, that is not appreciated and supported in physics departments. And so they drift over into philosophy departments because they can more easily pursue very foundational and conceptual questions than they can uh, in physics departments, but they certainly are perfectly competent about the physics. Now, uh, Hawking's idea, I suppose, was that, well, what if there are people who are trying to write about, say, the nature of space and time who are ignorant of physics? And I completely agree with him that that's a bad idea. Um, if you want to know about the nature of matter, if you want to know about the nature of space and time, if you want to understand the large-scale structure of the cosmos, you need input from science. But scientific theories are often not entirely clear, especially in their standard presentations, about what they're saying mm -hmm. um, about the world. And so there is a, a real issue of sorting out what the exact claims about the physical world that are implicit in the, in the physical theories. Now, it may sound strange um, that a physicist, to say a physicist might not quite understand what his own physical theories are saying, mm -hmm. but the fact is you can do a lot of physics just by doing mathematics. You, you learn to calculate, you learn to generate certain numbers, and you use those numbers to make predictions. But you can do all that, and when asked very basic questions about what the physical picture of the world is, that's being presented by the theory have nothing to say about it, be entirely unsure what to say about it. And that's the sort of thing that philosophers are most interested in. And so we spend our time on that. Tim, can we say that critical thinking is at the core of scientific method of investigation and critical thinking is at the core of philosophical thinking as well? And if this is correct, then one can say that science and philosophy complement each other and should strengthen our efforts to extend our knowledge and understanding? Do you agree with this perspective on science and philosophy? Well, of course, I, I think by critical thinking, what one wants to mean by that is that when you make a claim that you have arguments uh, available for why someone should accept the claim and that you've given thought about how strong those arguments are and where they might go wrong and where there might be um, alternative explanations. That's certainly true in science. Uh, we want scientists to be uh, sensitive to the tacit assumptions they're making, to be sensitive to alternative possible explanations of the phenomena they're looking at. And it's this, this sort of thing is also exactly what philosophers are, are trained to do, which is to root out and make explicit tacit assumptions that occur in people's reasoning and subject them to the clear light of inquiry and ask whether they may be wrong or, or what are grounds for believing them. So to that extent, the methods are quite similar. Um, the place where they tend nowadays to come apart is sometimes you'll get physicists who'll say um, that it's not their job or not their interest as physicists to understand the physical world. All they really want to be able to do is uh, manipulate numbers to make predictions and if the predictions come out correct, that's where it all ends. And that seems to me to be a very uh, sad understanding of what physics is about. Um, and I can certainly say many undergraduate physics majors agree with that, because I'll teach courses in philosophy of physics, which are really on these foundational questions. 
And I'll get physics majors who say, oh, this is why I went into physics. This is what I wanted to talk about. Uh, whereas in your physics courses, you're usually spending a lot of time just learning mathematical techniques for solving some equations. And as I say, you can be an absolute whiz at doing that, but still be completely unclear what those equations are presenting to you about the nature of the world. So the greatest physicist, to my mind, Einstein, for example, was very clear, and he said he thought part of the problem with physics from his point of view at a certain point was that not enough physicists had taken philosophy and learned sort of the kind of critical thinking or um, uh, investigation that you learn when you study a properly conducted philosophy course. So this view uh, that uh, a number of philosophers uh, have uh, uh, presented, uh, you have just briefly touched upon this, that scientists, particularly physicists, uh, focus only on calculations and mm -hmm. most of the times are either not willing to or perhaps not able to address the paradoxes that some of these theories and calculations present and this is where it is important to try to understand these theories and paradoxes from philosophical perspectives is this what you are um, suggesting well i agree with everything up you uh, everything you said except uh, i wouldn't say that you need to approach them from philosophical perspectives mm -hmm. uh, the first thing you have to do is to acknowledge that these problems are there and and when i say there are problems understanding physical theory i don't mean to say that these are philosophical problems i mean these are problems of physics, that these are the sorts of questions that a properly and clearly articulated physical theory ought to answer, um, and that physics as it now exists, and this largely has to do with quantum mechanics, is there is no standard answer to these basic questions. So let me give an example I use sometimes. Mm -hmm. um, when we think about atoms, you often see these kind of planetary pictures of atoms as planetary systems with the electrons orbiting around the nucleus. And physicists are perfectly happy, and chemists, to talk about electron orbitals. And even if you open a physics or chemistry book, you'll see pictures of different electron orbitals, the s orbitals and the p orbitals and the f orbitals, and they have interesting-looking shapes. Mm -hmm. But if you then ask the following question, what is that a picture of? Um, what is depicted in this picture? It's, it, it, you're not going to get any standard answer. When you say this is an orbital, do you mean there really is an electron that's moving around, and this is like a, a long time-lapse photograph saying where it goes? Or are you saying the electron is in some sense smeared out or spread out over this whole area and nothing's moving? Or sometimes you'll hear words as if the electron is sort of popping in and out of existence here and there, and again, if I, if I took a long uh, exposure photograph of where it pops in and out, I would get this picture. Uh, these are just quite different physical answers to the question, what exactly is the electron doing? Mm -hmm. And a standard physics text will not give you, will not present any of these as the answer, and usually what you'll be told, and this is a physics term, not a philosophy term, but a standard term, what you'll be told is shut up, and if you ask that question, shut up and calculate, right? If you say, okay, I know how to calculate the shape of an S orbital or the shape of a P orbital, mm -hmm. but please tell me what a P orbital is, uh, a standard kind of answer you'll get as a student is don't ask that question. And I think 
it's my view and the view of the physicists and mathematical physicists that I talk to, that that's a perfectly good physical question. It's a failure of physics to be unable to answer it, and it's a, a failure of physicists to be uninterested in it. That is, if, if your curiosity about a question like that has been beaten out of you by, by professors telling you not to ask those questions, then you've lost part of what was the main motivating uh, interest in physics itself, which was to have at least proposals for answers to questions like that. Uh, Tim, your research focuses on the subjects such as nature of time, nature of space-time and quantum physics, structure of the cosmos. Let us look into these concepts now one by one to see how philosophy can assist us and guide us to understand these very difficult-to-understand concepts. Let us start with time. Uh, Tim, what is time? Is it real or is it just an illusion? Yeah, so you, you, could, you should stop and think about that question. It's such a curious question, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Of course it's real. I mean, I, I, although you will hear many physicists and some philosophers uh, announce to you quite triumphantly that we now understand that time is an illusion, um, I, don't, it, it, I don't even, quite honestly, I can't understand in, in, in a straightforward way what such a claim could be. If you think about uh, the most skeptical uh, person around, it was Descartes in, in, in his meditations when he starts out, and he asks himself the question, exactly, what can I be absolutely certain about? What's beyond all doubt? And he manages to doubt uh, the existence of the, of the physical world. He could be dreaming. He manages to doubt that there's any space at all or there's any material bodies at all. But even Descartes couldn't bring himself to doubt that there was time because, after all, he was thinking in time, right? He was, he was proposing to himself certain questions and proposing to himself certain answers and having a dialogue going on in his head. And he was absolutely sure about that, and all of that takes place in time. It takes place in a certain succession. Um, the answers, the questions come first, and then the answers come later. So the idea that the whole notion of this successiveness of events could be illusory, I don't see what is left <laughs> at all, if that's illusory, um, what, what could not, you know, I, I don't even understand, because the illusion itself, as it were, you're going to say, illusions take place in time, right? Hallucinations take place in time, mm-hmm. fantasies take place in time. So this is the sort of thing where um, it, it's unappreciated or underappreciated what kind of absolutely astounding and astonishing argument you would need to be, have available to support a claim like time is an illusion. And I don't think there are such arguments. I think there are no arguments of any particular force that suggests that time is an illusion. So what is time? Well, time is the feature of the physical world that is responsible for this successiveness of events, the fact that events happen in certain order uh, from earlier to later. And I take that to be a physical fact about the world, and therefore it ought to be reflected in our physical theories of the world. Mm-hmm. And is time directional? Uh, do you think yes. that time there <laughs> is an arrow space, of time? Yes, of course. I mm-hmm. mean, time, unlike space, it, it goes in a you know it goes from past to future. Uh, everybody understands this, right? Everybody understands that we're getting older all the time. Uh, that today I'm I'm as it were inexorably closer to my death than I was yesterday, and that that directionality, which is 
reflected in the fundamental relation of before and after is something that doesn't happen in space. Uh, so you can imagine in a purely spatial structure, it has no particular directionality. A road that runs from east to west equally runs from west to east. Uh, and you wouldn't say that it any more goes one way than the other. So in, in terms of spatial structure, we, we tend not to think of spatial structure as having inherent directions to it. But we do think that time does. My own view is very simple. It's that the mathematics that was developed mm-hmm. to represent spatial geometry quite reasonably was developed without any need to represent directionality because we don't think space has any directions. And then what physics did was take those mathematical tools to try and represent space-time or space and time together. And if your mathematical tools haven't been built to show directionality and you try and use them to represent something that has an intrinsic directionality, then things don't fit well. Uh, and you end up with, with the mathematics, the directionality not shining through very clearly in the mathematics because you haven't built the right mathematics. Now, my own solution to this, which is um, rather radical, is to actually build an entirely new mathematics um, for representing geometries that have directional structure to them, and that's the big project I've been working on for some years, and uh, I'm still in the middle of Please tell us more about this project and this mathematical model that you have been working on. So the if you think about geometrical structure, um, and you start with Euclidean geometry, which everybody learns, some of Euclidean geometry. Um, Euclidean geometry uses, as its fundamental tools, a straight edge, which is supposed to allow you to indicate straight lines and a, and a compass, which is something that's, that indicates distances, so you pick out points that are equal distances from the center. But even more fundamental than that, is a geometrical structure that's called topological structure. Um, often, when people present topology, they, they use the phrase rubber sheet geometry. So they'll say, well, if I drew some pictures on a rubber sheet and then pulled it without tearing it or pasting it, various things would change. I would change straight lines into curved lines, and I would change distances. But some things wouldn't change. If I had a closed curve, it would still be a closed curve, and so on. So there's some geometrical invariance which are features that don't change when I stretch things. Mm-hmm. And there's the mathematical, a mathematical field of studying this kind of geometry called topology. If you then look at topology, it needs a fundamental geometrical structure, the one that everything's built on, and the structure that is used in standard topology is called an open set. So, again, this is probably familiar to most people. If you imagine on the number line, picking out this, the, the part of the number line between 0 and 1 with 0 and 1 included. You call that a closed interval because you have these two endpoints, 0 and 1. Mm-hmm. But if you remove the endpoints, it's called an open interval. It doesn't have any endpoints. Every number is now surrounded on both sides by other numbers in that interval, and it, it has no edges to it. So the idea of an open set is in some sense a set with no edges. And what standard topology does is it says, I'm going to define a lot of geometrical features, like whether a space is connected and whether a function from one space to another is a continuous function. I'm going to define all of that in terms of this open set structure. Now, 
if I give you an open set and I say put a direction on it, you wouldn't know what to do. It just doesn't have any particular meaning to mm -hmm. add a direction to it. Mm -hmm. So what I've done is I've said that's the wrong thing to start with. That's the, the wrong primitive notion, the wrong basic notion to be using. The right basic notion should be a line. And if I have a line uh, and I say put a direction on it, you know what I mean. It's, it's a, like if I have a street and I say, okay, let's make it a one-way street, mm -hmm. Uh, you have two choices. You can put the arrow one way or put the arrow the other way, and you have only two choices. So putting directions on lines is very obvious and intuitive and simple to understand how you do it. Putting directions on open sets, it's not at all clear what you would even mean by doing that. So what I've had to do is rewrite, try and rewrite or reformulate uh, all of this topological structure in terms of lines rather than open sets, and having done that, I can then put directions on the lines in a very straightforward way and talk about geometries that have directionality in them. And I'm using that to understand, to produce mathematical structures that would represent the structure of space and time. And uh, when we talk about space and time, just for our listeners, we have three dimensions of space, and then we include the fourth dimension of time, and we try to describe that as one entity that we call space-time. And what you have just described, this mathematical model that you are working on, it will help us to describe the space and time? Yes, it does. In fact, it, as it turns out, it's a very general mathematical tool, and if I go back to a kind of classical picture of space and time, the kind that Newton used, mm -hmm. I, can, I can represent it using this. But if you then move to relativity theory, uh, it's not just that I can represent a relativistic space-time structure using this, it's that it's, it was, as it were, made for relativity. It fits relativity like a glove. Um, uh, the... There's a sense in which, in relativistic space-time theory, and that's not true in classical theory, there's a sense in which you can really see all of the space-time geometry as arising just out of time, out of time structure, out mm -hmm. of temporal structure. Mm -hmm. And so, as it turns out, the sort of thing I'm doing when you, when you start to write down relativistic theories in these terms, everything goes extremely smoothly. And you're right, um, it was a big change. The big change from a classical picture to a relativistic picture was to uh, put space and time together into one kind of structure. Uh, and this is, is the sort of thing that lends itself to a mathematics which would be very unfamiliar if you had been doing classical physics. Mm -hmm. uh, so again, I think part of what's happened is there was some very sophisticated mathematics developed to do classical physics. When relativity came along, the natural thing to do is to use the mathematics you know, so you adapt that mathematics as best you can to a very different physical picture. But really, what would have been better uh, is to go back and really redo things at a more foundational level in a way that fits with the, with the new physics. This leads us to my next question. Uh, Tim, when we consider space-time or anything else in this universe at a very small scale, at Planck scale, it seems that classical physics and relativity theory do not help us to understand what goes on at that scale. And at that scale, laws of quantum physics take over. And at this level, very interesting things happen. Let us start with the concept of observer effect. A cat 
in a box can be alive and dead at the same time? Well, I, I don't think that's true. <laughs> mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. this is one of the places. So let me say, first of all, for people listening, because you know, it's a very surprising thing to find out, mm-hmm. that uh, basically we have two main physical, well-entrenched physical, fundamental physical theories. We have general relativity, which is essentially the theory of space-time structure and of gravity. So you use general relativity to explain gravitational effects. And then you have quantum physics that's used to explain everything else, which means electromagnetism and the nuclear, strong and weak nuclear forces that hold atoms together. Mm-hmm. And the, as you mentioned, which is certainly any physicist will acknowledge, it's not yet clear how to bring these two theories together or how to derive them each separately from one unified underlying theory, which must be possible because nature manages to... Um, deal with gravity and everything else all at the same time. So mm-hmm. it's, a, it's a fundamental physical problem to unify those two theories. But general relativity, if you work with it on its own, is a completely clear theory. It's, it, you, you, you may be puzzled about it when you first read about it, but as you work more problems, everything becomes clearer and clearer. Quantum theory is just the opposite, if you, if you, especially if you're worried at a foundational level, it doesn't become clear, and it isn't clear, and it's not at all obvious, um, as I said with the example of the electron, what is quantum theory telling me about what electrons are doing? Mm-hmm. Um, there's no clear answer to that. Now, I don't think in any well-defined, clear understanding of quantum mechanics, uh, there's a cat in a box that's both dead and alive at the same time. <laughs> I think on, you know, there are various different ways of trying to make a, a clear and precisely defined quantum mechanics. Mm-hmm. And um, on, most of, on, on them, the cat is just going to be either alive or dead, just the way you thought it was. And when you open the box, you're doing nothing but find out whether the poor cat survived or didn't. But you're opening the box doesn't have, play any particular role in bringing about that effect. Um, I know this runs contrary to what people like to say because it sounds very romantic and quite amazing to suggest that a poor cat can be an indeterminate state of aliveness until we look at it. Um, but there is no, absolutely no theory on which that's true, no clear, ar- clearly articulated theory on which that's true. Our looking at the cat just doesn't do anything like that to it. It's already alive or dead. Um, what we want to do is understand the physics of how it came to be that way. <laughs> Well, cat in a box is a metaphor representing a thought experiment. However, at quantum level, uh, subatomic particles behave in a manner that uh, suggests the existence of observer effect. Particles behave like a wave and particles at the same time until you make an observation and then we experience the wave function collapse. Well, again, you're, you're mixing together two questions there, so let me mm-hmm. separate them. This is, this is what my philosophical training will do. Mm-hmm. Um, there are lots of situations where we don't know things. Uh, if, if, I just, if I just flip a coin and, and hold it under my hand, I don't know whether it's heads or tails. But of course it is. It's either lying heads or tails. My knowing or not knowing it is not a physical fact about it. That's just about my state of knowledge. Um, the astonishing suggestion is that there are cases when uh, there's no fact of the matter in some sense of which way it is. And this, again, would have nothing to do with what I know or don't know. This is about the world itself. Um, is, is it, does quantum 
physics tell us that? Well, it, quantum physics isn't a well-defined enough theory to give an answer to that. Let me give you an example. Mm -hmm. There is one kind of way of understanding quantum physics, at least the non-relativistic version, which goes by the name pilot wave theory, and it's been around since 1927, mm -hmm. uh, or it's associated with the name of David Bohm. In that theory, uh, an electron really is a little point particle, and it's always somewhere. And together with that point particle, there is a wave-like entity called the quantum state. And so there's not a choice wave or particle. Um, it's always in that theory the case there is both a wave and a particle. The, the way the wave functions in the theory is to guide the particle or determine where the particle goes. So if that, if that particular theory happened to be correct, then there's never any indeterminacy of any kind. Um, it's true in certain circumstances you may not know which way the particle went, but it went one way or the other. And the fact that you get both particle-like behavior and wave-like behavior is explained by the simple hypothesis that there's both a particle and a wave. Um, this, is, this was a, a, a claim that John Bell, who, if, if you want to read anyone on foundational issues, you should read John Stuart Bell. Mm -hmm. um, John Bell says in one of his papers, it, it was just astonishing to him that so many people spent so much time arguing wave or particle, and it never occurred to them that there's an obvious answer, which is wave and particle. So that's one way to do it. There are other ways to do it. You can have, you mentioned wave collapses. In the theory I just mentioned, the wave function never collapses. Mm -hmm. um, the wave just always continues to act like a wave in the same way at all times. There are theories where there's something like collapse of the wave function, but where it's a well mathematically well-defined feature that has nothing to do with anybody observing anything. It just it, it is built into the equations that the wave function will collapse. It collapses in certain theories randomly from time to time. And what you do is you try and show that such a theory gives us the right predictions for how observable things will behave. So um, the, some of the mysteries that people talk about all get resolved in any clearly articulated uh, mathematically precise understanding of quantum physics. The problem is there's no agreed-upon correct way to understand it. Mm -hmm. So there are then debates against different approaches. The third main approach that's out there is the so-called many-worlds theory, which you've probably heard about, mm -hmm. which somehow suggests that in a, in a certain circumstance, and this is, again, not a metaphor, but literally I can take a cat and put it in an experimental situation so that after 10 minutes um, there are now two cats. Um, one of the cats is alive, the other cat is dead, they both trace back to the same original cat, and if I look at the cat, then there'll be two me's, one of which sees a live cat and one of which sees a dead cat, and both of those two individuals trace back to the original me. So there's this kind of splitting or, or branching uh, of, of the physical world into all these various possibilities, all these various, well, not possibilities, actualities that don't physically interact with each other. So that's a, a quite astonishing picture. Uh, it's another one that people think about and try and make sense of. It's very different than the, than the first two I mentioned, because in the first two I mentioned, um, there are never two cats. They're, 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 there's always only one, and it always ends up either alive or dead. The amazing thing is that, is that um, if you open a physics book, it won't tell you which of these is right. It won't discuss any of them. <laughs> It'll mm -hmm. just give you, give you some 
um, advice about how to calculate the likelihoods or probabilities of different outcomes. And another interesting and perhaps spooky uh, concept is uh, entangled particles. Uh, mm-hmm. What's your view on that? Well, entanglement is is the really amazingly new feature of quantum theory. So mm-hmm. people ask, how did our picture of the world change? How should can we very be very confident it ought to change our physical picture of the world because of quantum theory? And some people will say, well, it's kind of indeterminism or 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 this kind of half dead, half alive stuff. What I, I think what's true is that what's characteristic of quantum theory that was not in any previous classical theory is entanglement. Mm-hmm. Um, entanglement, the notion of entanglement, the word more or less was introduced by Schrodinger in the very paper where he talked about the cat. Um, and Schrodinger was reacting to a paper by Einstein, Podolsky, and Rosen, uh, which is a very famous paper in, in, in this field, uh, and it's so famous that they just call, you just call it EPR paper for Einstein, Podolsky, and Rosen. Mm-hmm. And what, what Einstein was really the first person to put his finger squarely on was essentially entanglement, which means that even if I, I can have a system of, say, two particles, and the two particles are very, very, very far apart, as far as I, apart as I can space, I can't think of them as each having their own physical state that's independent of the other, that somehow they're physically linked to each other. And that's not true in classical theory. Um, and Einstein couldn't believe it. I mean, he thought this was his main objection to standard quantum physics, was that he saw it in order to work, it needed what he called spooky action at a distance, that mm-hmm. doing an experiment in one location could have a physical effect or make a physical difference to how an experiment very, very distantly done would come out. And he just couldn't believe it. Um, so he wrote this, the EPR paper, the einstein podolsky rosen paper, was pointing this out and basically saying, this is good reason not to believe that quantum theory is correct. And Schrodinger read that paper and then, and then saw the point and actually saw how entanglement is shot through in quantum theory. It's not just a little thing, but you can really set up situations where any experiment I can do on one particle, I can predict the outcome of that by doing an appropriate experiment on the other particle, even though the other particle is very far away. And what standard quantum theory tells you is that um, how, how these experiments come out is not predetermined by the physical state. So uh, I, I'm doing an experiment on one side, and it could come out one of two ways. But by doing an experiment 100 miles away, I can tell you how it's going to come out. Mm-hmm. And, you, and, and you say, how can that be? Right? How, can, how can this very distant experiment be giving me this information? Um, so... Schrodinger introduced that, and then what Bell showed, and this was 30 years later, was that you basically, the predictions of quantum mechanics have this kind of non-locality or spooky action at a distance or whatever you want to call it. Mm-hmm. Just the predictions have it built in. You can't recover the, the basic predictions of, of quantum theory, the kind of predictions you can just test out in a laboratory. You can't make those predictions with a theory that doesn't have some kind of as it were, uh, action at a distance or non-locality in it. And that's just an astonishing result. It's not a result that most, even most physicists understand to this day. So that's, 
a reflection of the situation. There are very interesting implications uh, of this spooky action or uh, this uh, entanglement. Uh, quantum uh, computers are being developed and the idea is that uh, we will be able to exploit entanglement to perform computations. Another point also that the state of these two particles is somehow connected. But if these particles are so far apart, that light will take some time uh, if if they are communicating somehow using, let's say, speed of light uh, based uh, yes. communication mechanisms. But uh, communication is even faster than that. Now, communication yes. uh, in quotation marks, we don't know that they talk yes. to each other or not. Right. That's correct. There's a, there's a kind of dependency. I mean, let's just call it a dependency mm. between them. Mm. Uh, and it's a dependency that is, is not of the kind that you could imagine being prearranged in the following sense. So people sometimes say, look, suppose I take a, a coin, uh, as it were, and cut it down the middle so there's a head side and a tail side and put one in, each one in an envelope and send the envelopes off in different directions. All right, now I've already prearranged a situation where, of course, there's going to be a correlation. If, if the person in one place opens their envelope and finds the heads, of course, the person in the other place will open their envelope and find the tails. But there's nothing spooky about that. All of that was already prearranged at the beginning. Mm-hmm. Um, what, what Bell showed was exactly that that kind of prearrangement cannot explain the observable statistics of experiments. If, if the theory worked like that, you, you would, it would be restricted in the sorts of predictions, statistical predictions it could make for these distance experiments. And quantum mechanics does not obey those restrictions. So you can't reproduce in any way with a purely local kind of story, local physical story with everything going uh, no faster than light, everything that bears information or carries information going no faster than light. Mm -hmm. You cannot reproduce the predictions of quantum theory. So this does pose prima facie a tension, at least, between quantum theory and relativity. And this is one of the reasons why it has been so difficult to come up with a quantum theory of gravity, um, because when you try and put in, when you try and put relativity and, and restrictions about the speed of light mm-hmm. together with quantum theory, you you then get this other kind of uh, tension going on. Now it's not a flat logical contradiction, and you have to sort of tease out exactly what relativity puts restraints on and exactly what quantum mechanics allows you, and that's what's going on in my book, Quantum, uh, quantum Non-Locality and Relativity, basically just working through what is it that relativity forbids and what is it that quantum mechanics allows. <laughs> and you see, it's not, it's not like a straightforward logical contradiction, um, but there's a tension there, and it's not at all clear how that tension ought to be resolved. This idea of somehow combining these theories, you briefly touched upon that. We have this relativity, we have quantum mechanics, uh, different laws at different scales, and then now we are talking about quantum gravity. And there are different attempts somehow to combine these uh, theories and these laws uh, to perhaps create a theory that uh, one may call a theory uh, for everything. How close or how far we are? Well, I, I think it's very difficult to say how close or how far we are from that. I mean, the, the nearest attempt, the, the most widely researched 
thing that is presented as an attempt to reconcile them, I suppose, is string theory, um, which is a, an inherently quantum mechanical theory. And the claim is that in string theory, you will predict gravitational effects as well as these other effects. But there are all kinds of intrinsic problems to string theory. There really hasn't been any empirical evidence that it's correct or that there are certain fundamental assumptions that are made. There's no empirical evidence that those are correct. And on top of it, it is a quantum theory, and what I've been saying is that there are all kinds of trouble just understanding any quantum theory. There are foundational problems in how to understand the physical account of the world that's being presented by any quantum theory, and those are not resolved in string theory. The, the people doing string theory are not focused on those foundational problems. So um, you have both the question, will string theory, say, ever work? Um, and even if it does work, what, what about then even understanding it, right? Um, how far are we from understanding what it's really telling us? And I, I really wouldn't make any predictions at all. Um, the most widely studied attempt to, to produce a theory that is both a quantum mechanical theory and would account for gravitational effects is string theory. Mm -hmm. um, and it's not yet clear whether string theory is even right. Um, there, there's no direct experimental evidence that it's right. Uh, there are some assumptions that are made, and in fact, the experimental evidence doesn't seem to be giving us any grounds for thinking those assumptions are correct. But even if it were right, the, because it's a quantum theory, you have these interpretational problems with understanding any quantum theory. And even if we had in hand a theory that we could man mathematically manipulate to give us the right answers, it's not clear we would understand what it was telling us um, about the nature of the world. So, um, my job is, is, at this point, is just to articulate what the problems are and try and make them clear and not to prognosticate how long it'll take to solve them. You have written about the structure of the universe, uh, uh, that uh, why it seems so fine-tuned for life. Now, one way to describe this is that universe is fine-tuned intentionally for life. And another way to look at the same point is that this universe got fine-tuned by chance due to random actions and because it got fine-tuned by chance it supports life and we are here. What is your take on that mm -hmm. and talk to us about this. Well let, let me before I even talk about it let me just point out something about the, the nature of the question itself. It's a funny question mm -hmm. about fine-tuning because uh, if you want to talk about fine-tuning people pick life sometimes they pick intelligent life sometimes they pick human beings uh, you could just as well pick volcanoes, right? So, so a, a volcano is a pretty complicated object. And mm -hmm. in order to have volcanoes, you need to have planets that have solid surfaces and manage to get hot enough underneath to melt a rock. And that rock has to be able to produce pressure that forces volcanoes up. Now, you could sort of, as, a, as an exercise, ask yourself, if I started twiddling around with some constants of nature, if I made electrons slightly heavier or slightly lighter, um, would there be volcanoes? And uh, as far as I can tell, you would get very similar results that people talk about life. Now, nobody, however, is tempted to say, gee, maybe the universe was intentionally designed to produce volcanoes, right? Um, 
why is that? It's just mm-hmm. as good as our, an argument. Or maybe the universe was intentionally designed to produce cockroaches, which are certainly going to, you're going to need as much fine-tuning for that, mm-hmm. or for any number of other things. So there's a kind of presupposition in the whole way this question is asked, that life and then maybe even human beings are somehow going to be central to the universe. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And the first point I want to make is there's just no prospect at all of scientific research suggesting that that's true. That the, the entire force of scientific research, of our scientific understanding of the cosmos, ever since the development of telescopes, is to realize that human beings anyway and the Earth are no, not, play no central role in the universe. We're, we, you know, we evolved on a, in a pretty random location uh, in a very huge universe absolutely most of which has nothing to do with us, and, and, and it wouldn't make any difference to us one way or another if it didn't exist. Um, so there's, an I think, a not-so-hidden attempt to reinforce old religious doctrines mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. through cosmological observation, which if you're just honest about what cosmological observation has told us about the nature of the cosmos, those old religious accounts of the creation of the cosmos are wrong, right? And the, and the biblical account is that the earth was created at the center for us, um, and the animals were all created for human beings. That's just not true. We know that's not true. Now, the fine-tuning question, of course, depends upon having some information or some reliable argument about what are likely or unlikely values for constants of nature. And the fact is we have no good conceptual foundation for any such arguments. Um, How likely is it that uh, an electron would be about 2,000 times less massive than a proton? I don't know. (laughs) know, What do you mean likely? How how likely were those numbers to come out that way? I mean, how likely (laughs) is it that there should be uh, muons and tau particles as well as electrons? I don't know what likely even means there. So... um, the, 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 all the talk about fine-tuning relies on some kind of gesturing toward probabilities, mm-hmm. but it's not even clear what probability would mean for these kinds of questions. Um, now, it is true that if certain theories were correct, kind of multiverse theories that had the feature that they predict, if you look at the entire spread of physical existence, that there'll be different pockets where what we call the constants of nature take different values. So there's a pocket where electrons are just as massive as protons, and there's a pocket where electrons are more massive than protons, and there's a pocket where electrons are one two-thousandth the mass of protons. Um, If we had any reason to believe such a theory, then you would no longer be terribly surprised that the constants of nature where we live take values that allow life to evolve. <laughs> then it's just kind of analytic that, of course, life will only evolve in those pockets where the conditions are appropriate for life to evolve. Um, you might as well ask, gee, is it surprising that we're not in the middle of empty space? Well, no, not really. Of course, most of, you know, most of the physical extent of the universe will not support our living is it a surprise that we happen to find ourselves on Earth where we can breathe air? Well, no, because 
we couldn't evolve in empty space. So, of course, we're not going to find ourselves in empty space. Um, to say how improbable it is that we happen to be on Earth where we can live, that just doesn't seem to be the right thing to say. So there is a, a kind of conceptual possibility that if the things we think are constants aren't really constants, if they vary, and if the range of variation is quite wide, then um, it would be straightforward that there should be regions where it happens, they happen to take the values that are appropriate for life. But the fact is, we don't know enough. I mean, what I, what I, when I write about this, I often say the things we call the constants of nature, we don't know they're constant. We know they have been more or less constant over the period of time that we've measured them, which is not very long in cosmological scale. We've only been measuring masses of protons and electrons for a hundred years. Um, if you said, gee, maybe, maybe those values are actually themselves varying. Maybe uh, a long time ago they were different. Uh, maybe a long time in the future they'll be different. Well, we don't, we don't know that yet. Maybe they're linked to each other in ways we don't understand because the particles we look at are complex and they're made up of smaller particles um, in ways we don't yet understand. So there's a certain point where you just want to be acknowledge your lack of knowledge um, and therefore not be very confident about the judgments you might make of how likely or unlikely something is. When you suggest that perhaps there were different pockets and perhaps in these different pockets, the values for the fundamental properties uh, such as mass of an electron, mass uh, of a proton were different. Are you suggesting that perhaps each pocket evolved into a universe with different fundamental properties and with different values uh, for universal constants? If that is the case, uh, then perhaps there are millions of other universes, uh, each with different set of uh, universal constants. Is this what uh, you are suggesting? Well, this is, this is not mine. I mean, this is an act. There's, there's a theory called eternal inflation. Mm -hmm. And uh, according to the theory of eternal inflation, this is what at least is claimed to be predicted by that theory, that um, there's a kind of rapidly expanding universe. We now know that the universe we can see, the universe we can look at through our telescopes, however much of it that is of the whole thing, is um, very, very slightly accelerating and expanding. So this has to do with the measurement of something called the cosmological constant, or sometimes it's called dark energy. Mm -hmm. But there's a theory that says um, there's a, another condition that you can have somewhere in the universe where things are very rapidly expanding, very, very fast. And that in this kind of uh, exponentially growing region, you will then get these little bubbles of much more slowly growing space-time. So these are called pocket universes. And the picture is like bubbles forming in boiling water. Mm -hmm. You've got this ambient hot water, and then in it you get bigger and smaller bubbles that form. Mm -hmm. And that in the bubbles this very rapid expansion is damped down to become a very slow expansion. And furthermore, that in different bubbles, what we call the constants of nature would take different values. Now, that's an idea that's been out there that people have been working on for uh, some decades. It certainly conceptually makes sense. Uh, it's something one would like to think through and try and nail down the physical details and see both how plausible the physics behind it looks and whether there's any um, observational predictions you could get out of such a theory. 
if that turned out to be right, then the whole fine-tuning issue would just evaporate because you would say, um, if what we call the constants of nature have been tried and are and continue to be tried in all different combinations in different places, then it's not surprising that life would only evolve in those places where they happen to take values that allow life to evolve. In one of your articles on the subject of fundamental universal properties, uh, you suggest that if we give millions of monkeys typewriters, there is a high probability that some of these monkeys will produce good poetry. Yes, of course. This is, I mean, but this is again not not at all original. <laughs> I, you know, it, it's there. The, the, if you randomly pick at, uh, you know, it, it would be easy enough to do a calculation. Mm-hmm. Um, take Hamlet and take the number of possible keys you can press on a typewriter. Uh, if you hit them at random, it's easy enough to write down a number, which is the likelihood that by randomly pecking at a typewriter, you'll happen to hit out Hamlet in the right order. And it's a number, okay? It's a very, very tiny probability. But the tininess of the probability, you then have to ask, well, how many times has this been tried? This is mm-hmm. the, the idea of having all these monkeys. And, and clearly... However small the probability is, if I give you enough monkeys, or if I give you an infinite number of monkeys, um, it becomes essentially certain that at least one of them will hit it right. So the, the idea that if you have variation, if you have a, a process that's trying out uh, different prob- possibilities, and you try out enough of them that it becomes essentially certain you'll try all of them, or at least as close as you like to any of them, um, that's just straightforward mathematics. Uh, the idea is that, is that this in- eternal inflation view with all these pocket universes could actually give you a physics like that, that the universe could in some sense be infinite in extent. It could contain an infinite number of these different little pockets. The different pockets are all trying out different values for these, di- these constants. And if so, then no surprise if some set of possible combination works that it will happen. It'll certainly happen. Um, it'll, if, if this is infinite, it'll probably happen an infinite number of times. The title of your book, The Metaphysics Within Physics, seems interesting. Mm-hmm. Is there metaphysics within physics? Well, I, it, it seems interesting, but I was sort of making a linguistic point there. Mm-hmm. That is, the, the word metaphysics came into the language as the name of uh, something that Aristotle wrote. Aristotle himself did never use that word. It never appears in the manuscript. And so if you ask, well, what, was, what happens in that text we call the, Aris- the metaphysics of Aristotle, what was he worried about? What was he thinking about? What he'll tell you he was thinking about is the theory, uh, uh, it's often said, the theory of being qua being, which sounds really fancy. But what he just meant was a general theory of what exists, what sorts of things exist. And he gave a list. He said, well, there are substances like people and chairs and tables and horses and their quantities and their qualities and their positions and places and times and so on. And he gave a kind of list of the categories of what exists. So metaphysics just is the study of what exists taken at its most general, high-level, abstract scale. Mm -hmm. If you're interested in the physical world and you want to know in general what's it made of, that's a metaphysical question. It's what is physical existence? And of course, what you expect is that, that the answer to that question ought to be informed by our best physics. So any good physics 
should tell you what it postulates to exist. And what it postulates to exist is just the metaphysics within that physics. It's what that physics is telling you exists. Um, the real problem, as I say, is that many physicists, uh, if you ask them what exactly exists according to your physical theory, then they say that's not the kind of question I, I'm interested in as a physicist. <laughs> that's <laughs> philosophy. And I think that's physics, right? And Einstein thought that was physics, and John Bell thought that was physics, and Schrodinger thought that was physics. Um, so a lot of physicists thought those kinds of questions were physics. Um, the, and, and in a way, again, if you go way back to your quote from Hawking, if Hawking's just saying a, a well-conducted inquiry into the nature of existence should take account of science, absolutely. That's absolutely true. That's what I try to do. That's what all the philosophers of physics I know try to do. We're trying to learn physics. But to extract from it or to reflect on what answers you could get to these more basic fundamental questions from that physics. And the, the, the curious fact is that the physics texts will not answer that question. They'll give you some mathematics, but they will not answer basic questions. As you said, you'll often hear that in quantum mechanics, looking at something, you know, the observer effect, watching something or looking at something, mm -hmm. an observer seeing something has this profound physical effect on it. Is that really true? I claim it isn't. I claim that, that, that well-formulated understandings of quantum mechanics, none of them have that consequence. Um, there's nothing special about observers. But certainly a lot of physicists have said that's the, that is the lesson of quantum mechanics. So this is something that needs careful consideration and the kind of careful consideration you get by uh, training in philosophy, to tell you the truth. Tim, finally, what are major developments and breakthroughs that you envisage in the field of your research, say, in the next 50 to 60 years? Well, I, I suppose in the next 50 or 60 years, uh, and again, the, the research insofar as there are breakthroughs, some of them will, will come from getting new data. So if you ask me right now what's going to push physics research in, 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 in particular directions, which will give philosophers of physics something to chew on, um, there should be some answers to, for example, there's a technical question called supersymmetry. So um, uh, a supersymmetric physical theory mm -hmm. postulates that in addition to all the kinds of particles we're familiar with, electrons and protons and neutrons and photons, they have these so-called supersymmetric partners, which they, they're very fancy. They put S's in front of it, so they become selectrons and, well, photinos and things. Um, so that's a, that, if you ask about the metaphysics within physics, that's a physics that's saying, you know, there are as many particles that we haven't yet ever seen as there are particles that we've seen. So in the next 50 years, they, probably sooner than that, um, we'll get some judgment about whether the supersymmetry is correct or not. It, it, the claims are now that even the data they're getting from the Large Hadron Collider are, are not supporting the idea there's supersymmetry. And, and many physicists say, gee, if there's no supersymmetry, it's so important to my theory, I don't know what to do. I, I don't know how to go on if I can't have it. Um, so I think that'll shake up one way or the other. Either we'll discover there are these things, that would be a great discovery, or we'll be pretty sure there aren't these things, and that would shake up theory. Um, on the more purely conceptual question about resolving the basic conceptual or interpretational questions of quantum theory, that's, you, you don't need um, 
a technical breakthrough. You first of all need enough physicists to recognize that these problems exist, and then you need people with really smart ideas. And uh, I, I wish I could predict how long it'll take for somebody with a really smart idea to come along. And I'm, I'm afraid there's no, you know, there's no curve that'll tell you when that's likely to happen. I can tell you when we'll get better data from the Large Hadron Collider, and that might settle some issue. But when someone will have a really clever idea that helps us, say, put together quantum theory and, and relativity, uh, it could happen tomorrow, or it could wait for another centuries, or maybe it's beyond human capacity to discover. So uh, I don't have a crystal ball. <laughs> Professor Tim Maudlin, thank you very much for being with us. It has been an absolute pleasure having you on my show. Well, thank you very much. I've really enjoyed it. 